Part Two, Section One of the Life of King Alfred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of King Alfred by Asser, Bishop of Sherborne, translated by J. A. Giles. Part Two, Section One. The life of King Alfred from A.D. 849 to A.D. 887. Part 2. In the same year also, Carloman, king of the western Franks, whilst hunting a wild boar, was miserably killed by a large animal of that species, which inflicted a dreadful wound on him with its tusk. His brother, Louis III, who had been king of the Franks, died the year before. These two brothers were sons of Louis, king of the Franks, who had died in the year above mentioned in which the eclipse of the sun took place. And it was he whose daughter Judith was given by her father's wish in marriage to Ethelwolf, king of the West Saxons. In the same year also, a great army of the pagans came from Germany into the country of the ancient Saxons, which is called in Saxon Aldsaxum. Note or Old Saxons. End of note. To oppose them, the said Saxons and Frisons joined their forces and fought bravely twice in that same year. In both those battles the Christians, with the merciful aid of the Lord, obtained the victory. In the same year also, Charles, king of the Almains, received with universal consent all the territories which lie between the Tyrrhenian Sea and that gulf which runs between the old Saxons and the Gauls, except the kingdom of Armorica, that is, Lesser Britain. This Charles was the son of King Louis, who was brother of Charles, King of the Franks, father of the aforesaid Queen Judith. These two brothers were sons of Louis, but Louis was the son of the great, the ancient and wise Charlemagne, who was the son of Pepin. In the same year Pope Martin, of blessed memory, went the way of all flesh. It was he who, in regard for Alfred, king of the Anglo-Saxons, and at his request, freed the school of the Anglo-Saxons resident at Rome from all tribute and tax. He also sent many gifts on that occasion, among which was no small portion of the holy and venerable cross on which our Lord Jesus Christ was suspended for the general salvation of mankind. In the same year also, the army of pagans which dwelt among the East Angles disgracefully broke the peace which they had concluded with King Alfred. Wherefore, to return to that from which I digressed, that I may not be compelled by my long navigation to abandon the port of rest which I was making for, I propose, as far as my knowledge will enable me, to speak of the life and character and just conduct of my lord Alfred, king of the Anglo-Saxons, after he married the above-named respected lady of Mercian race, his wife. And, with God's blessing, I will dispatch it succinctly and briefly, as I promised, that I may not offend the delicate minds of my readers by prolixity in relating each new event. His nuptials were honorably celebrated in Mercia, 
among innumerable multitudes of people of both sexes, and after continual feasts, both by night and by day, he was immediately seized in the presence of all the people by sudden and overwhelming pain, as yet unknown to all the physicians, for it was unknown to all who were then present, and even to those who daily see him up to the present time, which, sad to say, is the worst of all, that he should have protracted it so long from the twentieth to the fortieth year of his life, and even more than that through the space of so many years, from what cause so great a malady arose. For many thought that this was occasioned by the favor and fascination of the people who surrounded him, others by some spite of the devil who is ever jealous of the good, others from an unusual kind of fever. He had this sort of severe disease from his childhood, but once, divine providence so ordered it, that when he was on a visit to Cornwall for the sake of hunting, and had turned out of the road to pray in a certain chapel in which rests the body of St. Gerir, and now also St. Neot rests there, for King Alfred was always from his infancy a frequent visitor of holy places for the sake of prayer and almsgiving, he prostrated himself for private devotion, and after some time spent therein he entreated of God's mercy that in his boundless clemency he would exchange the torments of the malady which then afflicted him for some other lighter disease, but with this condition, that such disease should not show itself outwardly in his body, lest he should be an object of contempt and less able to benefit mankind, for he had great dread of leprosy or blindness or any such complaint as makes men useless or contemptible when it afflicts them. Note. St. Gerir. St. Gerir's church was at Ham Stroke in Cornwall. St. Neot. An interesting account of St. Neot will be found in Gorham's History and Antiquities of Einsbury and St. Neot's. End of note. When he had finished his prayers, he proceeded on his journey, and not long after he felt within him that by the hand of the Almighty he was healed according to his request of his disorder, and that it was entirely eradicated, although he had first had even this complaint in the flower of his youth by his devout and pious prayers and supplications to Almighty God. For, if I may be allowed to speak briefly, but in a somewhat preposterous order, of his zealous piety to God in the flower of his youth, before he entered the marriage state, he wished to strengthen his mind in the observance of God's commandments, for he perceived that he could with difficulty abstain from gratifying his carnal desires. And, because he feared the anger of God if he should do anything contrary to his will, he used often to rise in the morning at the cock-crow, and go to pray in the churches and at the relics of the saints. There he prostrated himself on the ground, and prayed that God in his mercy would strengthen his mind still more in his service, by some infirmity such as he might bear, but not such as would render him imbecile and contemptible in his worldly duties. And when he had often prayed with much devotion to this effect, after an interval of some time, Providence vouchsafed to afflict him with the above-named disease, 
which he bore long and painfully for many years, and even despaired of life until he entirely got rid of it by his prayers. But, sad to say, it was replaced, as we have said, at his marriage, by another, which incessantly tormented him night and day from the twentieth to the forty-fourth year of his life. But if ever, by God's mercy, he was relieved from this infirmity for a single day or night, yet the fear and dread of that dreadful malady never left him, but rendered him almost useless, as he thought, for every duty, whether human or divine. The sons and daughters which he had by his wife above mentioned were Ethelfled the eldest, after whom came Edward, then Ethelgiva, then Ethelswitha, then Ethelward, besides those who died in their infancy, one of whom was Edmund. Ethelfled, when she arrived at a marriageable age, was united to Ethered, Earl of Mercia. Ethelgiva also was dedicated to God and submitted to the rules of a monastic life. Ethelward the youngest, by the divine counsels and the admirable prudence of the king, was consigned to the schools of learning, where, with the children of almost all the nobility of the country, and many also who were not noble, he prospered under the diligent care of his teachers. Books in both languages, namely Latin and Saxon, were both read in the school. They also learned to write so that before they were of an age to practice manly arts, namely hunting and such pursuits as befit noblemen, they became studious and clever in the liberal arts. Edward and Ethelswitha were bred up in the king's court, and received great attention from their attendants and nurses. Nay, they continue to this day with the love of all about them, and showing affability, and even gentleness towards all, both natives and foreigners, and in complete subjection to their father. Nor among their other studies which appertain to this life and are fit for noble youths are they suffered to pass their time idly and unprofitably without learning the liberal arts, for they have carefully learned the Psalms and Saxon books, especially the Saxon poems, and are continually in the habit of making use of books. In the meantime, the king, during the frequent wars and other trammels of this present life, the invasions of the pagans, and his own daily infirmities of body, continued to carry on the government, and to exercise hunting in all its branches, to teach his workers in gold and artificers of all kinds, his falconers, hawkers, and dog-keepers, to build houses, majestic and good beyond the precedence of his ancestors by his new mechanical inventions, to recite the Saxon books, and especially to learn by heart the Saxon poems, and to make others learn them. And he alone never desisted from studying most diligently to the best of his ability. He attended the Mass and other daily services of religion. He was frequent in psalm-singing and prayer at the hours both of the day and the night. He also went to the churches, as we have already said, in the night-time, to pray secretly and unknown to his courtiers. He bestowed alms and largesses on both natives and foreigners of all countries. He was affable and pleasant to all, and curiously eager to investigate things unknown. Many Franks, Frisons, Gauls, Pagans, Britons, Scots, and Armoricans, 
noble and ignoble, submitted voluntarily to his dominion. And all of them, according to their nation and deserving, were ruled, loved, honored, and enriched with money and power. Moreover, the king was in the habit of hearing the divine scriptures read by his own countrymen, or, if by any chance it so happened, in company with foreigners, and he attended to it with sedulity and solicitude. His bishops, too, and all ecclesiastics, his earls and nobles, ministers and friends, were loved by him with wonderful affection. And their sons, who were bred up in the royal household, were no less dear to him than his own. He had them instructed in all kinds of good morals, and, among other things, never ceased to teach them letters, night and day. But as if he had no consolation in all these things, and suffered no other annoyance either from within or without, yet he was harassed by daily and nightly affliction, that he complained to God and to all who were admitted to his familiar love, that Almighty God had made him ignorant of divine wisdom and of the liberal arts. In this, emulating the pious, the wise, and wealthy Solomon, king of the Hebrews, who at first, despising all present glory and riches, asked wisdom of God, and found both, namely wisdom and worldly glory. As it is written, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But God, who is always the inspector of the thoughts of the mind within, and the instigator of all good intentions, and a most plentiful aider, that good desires may be formed, for he would not instigate a man to good intentions unless he also amply supplied that which the man justly and properly wishes to have, instigated the king's mind within, as it is written, I will hearken what the Lord God will say concerning me. He would avail himself of every opportunity to procure coadjutors in his good designs to aid him in his strivings after wisdom, that he might attain to what he aimed at, and, like a prudent bird, which, rising in summer with the early morning from her beloved nest, steers her rapid flight through the uncertain tracks of ether, and descends on the manifold and varied flowers of grasses, herbs, and shrubs, essaying that which pleases most, that she may bear it to her home, so did he direct his eyes afar, and seek without, that which he had not within, namely in his own kingdom. But God, at that time, as some consolation to the king's benevolence, yielding to his complaint, sent certain lights to illuminate him, namely Werefrith, bishop of the Church of Worcester, a man well versed in divine scripture, who, by the king's command, first turned the books of the dialogues of Pope Gregory and Peter, his disciple, from Latin into Saxon and, sometimes putting sense for sense, interpreted them with clearness and elegance. After him was Plegmund, a Mercian by birth, Archbishop of the Church of Canterbury, a venerable man and endowed with wisdom. Ethelstan also, and Werewolf, his priests and chaplains, Mercians by birth and erudite. These four had been invited out of Mercia by King Alfred, who exalted them with many honors and powers in the kingdom of the West Saxons, besides the privileges which Archbishop Plegmund and Bishop Werefrith enjoyed in Mercia. 
By their teaching and wisdom the king's desires increased unceasingly, and were gratified. Night and day, whenever he had leisure, he commanded such men as these to read books to him, for he never suffered himself to be without one of them. Wherefore he possessed a knowledge of every book, though of himself he could not yet understand anything of books, for he had not yet learned to read anything. But the king's commendable avarice could not be gratified even in this. Wherefore he sent messages beyond the sea to Gaul to procure teachers, and he invited from thence Grimbald, priest and monk, a venerable man and good singer, adorned with every kind of ecclesiastical discipline and good morals, and most learned in holy scripture. Note. Grimbald was provost of St. Omer's. End of note. He also obtained from thence John, also priest and monk, a man of most energetic talents, and learned in all kinds of literary science, and skilled in many other arts. Note. John had been connected with the monastery of Corby. End of note. By the teaching of these men, the king's mind was much enlarged, and he enriched and honored them with much influence. In these times I also came into Saxony out of the furthest coasts of western Britain. And when I had proposed to go to him through many intervening provinces, I arrived in the country of the Saxons, who live on the right hand, which in Saxon is called Sussex, under the guidance of some of that nation. And there I first saw him in the royal ville, which is called Dean. Note. East Dean, or Dean, and West Dean are two villages near Chichester. There are also other villages of the same name near Eastbourne. End of note. He received me with kindness, and among other familiar conversation, he asked me eagerly to devote myself to his service, and become his friend, to leave everything which I possessed on the left or western bank of the Severn, and he promised he would give more than an equivalent for it in his own dominions. I replied that I could not incautiously and rashly promise such things, for it seemed to me unjust that I should leave those sacred places in which I had been bred, educated, and crowned, and at last ordained, for the sake of any earthly honor and power, unless by compulsion. Note. Crowned. This expression alludes to the tonsure which was undergone by those who became clerks. For a description of the ecclesiastical tonsure, see Bede's Ecclesiastical History, page 160. End of note. Upon this, he said, If you cannot accede to this, at least let me have your service in part. Spend six months of the year with me here, and the other six in Britain. To this I replied, I could not even promise that easily or hastily without the advice of my friends. At length, however, when I perceived that he was anxious for my services, though I knew not why, I promised him that, if my life was spared, I would return to him after six months, with such reply as should be agreeable to him, as well as advantageous to me and mine. With this answer he was satisfied, and when I had given him a pledge to return at the appointed time, on the fourth day we left him, and returned on horseback towards our own country. After our departure, 
a violent fever seized me in the city of Winchester, where I lay for twelve months and one week, night and day, without hope of recovery. At the appointed time, therefore, I could not fulfill my promise of visiting him, and he sent messengers to hasten my journey and to inquire the cause of my delay. As I was unable to ride to him, I sent a second messenger to tell him the cause of my delay and assure him that, if I recovered from my infirmity, I would fulfill what I had promised. My complaint left me, and by the advice and consent of all my friends, for the benefit of that holy place and of all who dwelt therein, I did as I had promised to the king, and devoted myself to his service, on the condition that I should remain with him six months in every year either continuously, if I could spend six months with him at once, or alternately, three months in Britain and three in Saxony. Note. The original Latin continues, Et illa adjuaretur per rudimenta sancti degui in omni causa, tamen proviribus, which I do not understand, and therefore cannot translate. End of note. For my friends hoped that they should sustain less tribulation and harm from King Hemeid, who often plundered that monastery and the parish of St. Degous, and sometimes expelled the prelates, as they expelled Archbishop Novus my relation, and myself, if in any manner I could secure the notice and friendship of the king. Note. King Hemeid, a petty prince of South Wales. St. Degous, or St. Dewi, probably by the parish of St. Degous, is meant the diocese of St. David's. Hence it is said that Alfred gave to Asser the whole parish, Omnis Parochia, of Exeter. Archbishop Novus, Archbishop of St. David's. End of note. End of part two, section one.